Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. It's Sal Capaccio. Sal Capaccio. Sal Capaccio. Sal Capaccio. Sal Capaccio. Sal Capaccio. On WGR. All right, we are three hours down, two hours ago. It's a five-hour South Sports Radio takeover today. WGR Sports Radio 550. Glad you could join us. It's beautiful, absolutely gorgeous outside. So if you're outside gardening or whatever, you got the headphones on, listening to WGR, you're on your on the road somewhere, going somewhere, just trying to get out during this whole pandemic thing, at least just trying to get some fresh air out there, socially distancing, whatever. I know that you got us on some way. Radio.com app, Alexa, however it is, really appreciate it. All right, my next guest, I have to make sure that uh, it's his real name. It sounds like an awesome stage name, and he's a writer at uh, NFL.com around the NFL. His name is Nick Shook, and I wanted to get him on for an article he wrote about Stefan Diggs. But first, Nick, thanks for doing this. And is that your real name? Because that seems like it's a stage name, to be honest with you. Yeah, I never thought about that. That would be quite a name to come up with. But no, it is my real name. In fact, my first name, that's my full first name, too. It's not even short for, like, Nicholas. It's just, it's just two syllables. Wow. That's who I am right there. You know, you could, you could definitely go on stage. And, I mean, what would if, I, if your stage name was Nick Shook, I think maybe rapper, some sort of R&B artist, something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. I mean, I've gotten a lot of the uh, comparisons to the old Mob Deep song, uh, Shook ones. So, you know, <laughs> that would make sense. All right, well, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it today. And uh, one of the reasons I... I want to get you on. I want to talk some next-gen stats, but first and foremost, uh, you wrote an article via next-gen stats about top pass catchers in the NFL last year, and you did it based on catches versus expected catches. So I'll let you explain what the metrics are and then tell everybody why you had Stefan Diggs ranked so highly. So basically what what – the baseline for because what we use is, is a, a expectation, the rate above or below expectation. So, when a quarterback attempts a pass, there are a number of different factors that are taken into account to project whether it's expected to be completed or not. And then, if you take the number of expected completions divided by the total attempts, then you get your expected completion percentage. On the receiver side, you kind of get the same thing, but what you take into account with them is speed of the receiver, um, separation from nearest defender at the time of a target 
you know, so it's whether it's a tight window throw, whether they're open, whether they're uh, wide open or whether they're covered, uh, pressure of quarterback, that kind of thing also is accounted for in this. So it's a lot of different factors that are all um, in play at once to give you uh, a projection of whether it's expected to be caught. And then you take the same, uh, you kind of follow the same methodology as you would on the quarterback side with the receiver side. So you see total targets, total receptions, how many of those targets were expected to be caught, and then you do the math accordingly. Um, the higher amount of targets is usually going to give you a lower percentage uh, or a lower catch percentage, uh, per, uh, an expectation percentage, kind of a, uh, a lot of different numbers working into it at once. But basically, you're looking for the difference between expectation and actual reception percentage uh, on the amount of targets. And, and on the positive side, indicates that somebody is performing better than expectation. Uh, Michael Thomas was number one in that group, but Stefan Diggs also found himself very high. So what we did when we did, you know, we're in the middle of doing a series right now. Um, the first one was uh, the best pass catchers of 2019, according to their catch expectation difference. Michael Thomas with a positive 12.7%. Uh, and, and then we kind of just ordered them accordingly. So Tyler Lockett was right behind him, just 0.1% uh, behind him. Stefan Diggs a couple percentage points below, but still catching passes, at a rate of more 10% over expectation, 10.7%. So basically what he's doing is he's making catches that are not expected to be catches, that based on separation, based on time of throw, the speed he's moving, that kind of thing, attempts that he should not catch according to all these different things he is catching, which kind of indicates who is a receiver who's making the unexpected play and doing it consistently over the course of the season, which kind of helps us um, differentiate between you know, guys who rack up targets and rack up receptions because of a, li- a higher amount of targets and those who are actually making spectacular or unexpected, unlikely plays and really kind of giving us a numerical way of of, uh, of defining a star player and a player who's worth paying the big dollars. All right, so on Diggs specifically, um, it, I'm reading here what you, what you wrote. It said he did so by winning press challenges. He was pressed on 42% of routes run, enjoying just 2.5 yards, of separation on average. So break that down and explain to people what exactly that means. So that's a lot of press coverage for a receiver to face the line. Um, comparatively, some of the other guys in this list did not face press coverage nearly as often. Um, I think I want to say Thomas, Michael Thomas had a similar uh, amount of, of press coverage, but some other guys were given a lot more cushion. Uh, the number two guy on this list, Tyler Lockett, was pressed only 15.5% of the time. So there's a big difference there. So Diggs, basically the the picture that was painted by the stats this past season for him was he was facing a lot of single coverage, but they were pressing him. So they were content. A lot of defenses were content with covering him with just one guy, but they were going to give him, uh, you know, a challenge off the line for the majority Mm -hmm. of it. Because he's not the biggest guy, you know, they think that, hey, we're going to try and win this challenge by, you know, out-physicaling him and, and knocking him off his course when he's trying to run these routes. Obviously that didn't work as well as expected so uh when you see a guy who's facing a higher press rate um you know that that's basically you know defenses are going to challenge this guy and and he created enough separation i mean 2.5 yards is more than some guys have it's not a ton but that means he's winning the press more often than not off the line the jam and then and in creating space with his route running in, in order to make catches and uh and and he's making catches a little bit a little bit further down the field as well uh, with an air yards average of 14.9, that's a lot longer than a guy like Michael Thomas, who you know set their single season receptions record, was making his air yards average. I believe was below 10. So 
Uh, he's winning off the line, he's creating space, and he's making catches down the field, which result in bigger plays. All right, so I'm glad you explained it that way because if I read it, I could also think, okay, well, are you telling me through this that he's only, as you say, enjoying 2.5 yards of separation? Does that mean he's not good enough at getting separation? It's not what you're saying. You're saying they're just trying to blanket him really tight. Yeah, that's exactly what's basically being said. And that's the thing with these numbers is that's why we rely on that uh, difference between expectation because it takes into account all those different factors and kind of gives you a better idea of, well, this guy's dealing with a different set of circumstances than, than a different guy is. So that's when you kind of dig into the, the separation and, and the amount of press coverage and how often they're being challenged at the line because some guys get more of a cushion. Tyler Lockett gets more of a cushion and then makes plays accordingly, whereas a Stephon Diggs does not. So, uh, yeah, he, he's, he's exactly what you said. Chris. And, and now when he comes to Buffalo, they had feel in there. Look, he's coming to a team that has John Brown that had a really nice year last year. He's a good receiver, uh, and they have Cole Beasley in the slot, and the Bills did play a ton of 11 personnel last year, um, so they had three wide receivers on the field. He might see similar type of situation this year in, in all these same metrics. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, because you have a well-balanced receiving core, and he's coming in to essentially be your number one. So he's going to get probably a little more attention than he did in Minnesota. But then again, you know, last year, a lot of that season that it was played by the Vikings, you know, Adam Thielen wasn't entirely healthy. So if you look at them on, on paper, you're like, well, you know, he's getting single coverage because they've got another good receiver opposite him. Yeah, well, he wasn't really up to snuff for a lot of the season last year, which means he got added attention, and, and the press kind of indicates that. So uh, you should probably expect similar output from him, and, and should, that should really excite uh, Bills fans. And one of the things we really heard about, you know, Stefan was – when he came to Buffalo, two things that stood out to a lot of people. His route running is exceptional. That's what the book on him is. But contested catches, and, you know, here he's going to a quarterback in Josh Allen who we know, you know, he's not Drew Brees. He's not going to be pinpoint accuracy all the time. How much will that factor in all of these things, and how much does the, the quarterback, you know, play a role in all of these stats that you put together? Well, so it depends. It depends on what category we're talking about with, you know, because – you know, Stephon Diggs can make the bigger play. Um, you know, he's he's shown that he's capable of that. There's another interesting next-gen stats piece that, that I wrote this week that's out about deep ball throwers. And and Josh Allen's greatest strength, right, coming out of college was his big arm. Well, mm-hmm. he's actually he's actually one of the worst uh, deep ball throwers when it comes to, again, the, the completion percentage as compared to expectation. Um, him and Jared Goff are pretty much down there at the bottom of the list with that. So it's, it's a deep ball accuracy thing, right? Right. But I don't think that that's necessarily something that you have to entirely worry about because if you have a receiver who is winning uh, you know, that type of press coverage off the line and creating space with that route running like he is, because, again, you know, if you're getting pressed nearly 50% of the time and you're also enjoying an average separation of 2.5 yards, that means that you're creating that space with your feet. So uh, if you have a receiver who's going to create that space, it gives you a little bit better of a window of opportunity there and uh, you know, lessens your chance of risk of throwing an interception or having a ball batted down because he's, ge- he's getting you that space before you even target him. I think it's just really a matter of them developing uh, a rapport and a familiarity, which unfortunately because of you know, the pandemic that we're dealing with right now, they're not getting a lot of on-field reps together. Uh, so that's something you're going to have to monitor you know, once you get to the season and, and how they get comfortable with each other. We've seen other receivers struggle with new quarterbacks in the past uh, without getting a lot of off-season work. So that's something that you're going to have to look for. But I think that this is a quarterback who – 
still has the ability to get him the football, and he hasn't had a receiver like this. So right. um, I, I think there's nothing but you know positive reasons to be encouraged about. On this particular article you wrote, uh, the top 10 pass catchers of 2019 based on the next-gen stats, was there anybody that stood out to you for better or for worse that you were surprised at? Somebody was higher on your list, someone who made the top 10 that you said, oh, that's interesting, I didn't expect him to be there, or someone who you thought going in maybe would be in the top 10 but was not? Um, I was a little surprised that Calvin Ridley ended up up there. Me too. Uh, I, 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 I looked at it and thought the same thing, to be honest with you. Yeah, and that's the thing is you're going to see, too, we just published uh, a top ten disruptors, and there's going to be – let me just tell you, my Twitter mentions have been lit up for the last three days. Uh, <laughs> people are very upset that their favorite player is not on the Of list, course, of and, course. And understandably so. Uh, Matt Stafford has, has drawn a lot of uh, – has drawn the ire of a lot of Lions fans in the last few days, and, and that's just because he didn't play a full season. But in the receiving uh, category, I think Ridley's one of those guys who shows up where you're like, you think about the Falcons, you think about Julio Jones, you think about, well, he, you know, he's a big play receiver. He's a guy who makes contested catches all the time. Yes, but I think sometimes we deal with a sample size and, and the amount, uh, the volume that you're, you're getting in terms of targets. And, and I think, you know, uh, sometimes the higher amount of targets is going to lower your expectation. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it produces the opposite, which really, I think, indicates a guy who's uh, performing well. For example, another Falcon, uh, Adrian Claiborne, is going to end up on this disruptors list today. And that's going to upset a lot of people because he didn't even have 300 pass rush snaps. But he made the most of those snaps, which is why that, that difference in, in, in disrupting, disruptors, excuse me, there's a disruption rate which is similar to that difference between uh, catch percentage as opposed to expected catch percentage and the difference there. So um, you're going to see guys who are going to pop up on these lists that maybe you don't think should deserve to be on this list because there might be better players. But we're talking about efficiency and making the most of their opportunities, and they might have less opportunities, which is why they might be not so much in your consciousness um, as opposed to some bigger names. And I think a guy like Ridley definitely – on this list was surprising. I was surprised to see Hunter Henry on there as well, just because uh, you know this is his first season back from that significant injury he dealt with uh, as, as a member of the Chargers. So that was a little bit of a surprise. Emmanuel Sanders on there as well at number nine, I thought was just a little bit of a surprise, but he's an effective receiver still, even at his age. And one that wasn't a surprise that I was very happy to see show up on the list was A.J. Brown, who I think is a mm-hmm. stud and was very much overlooked last year, and I think he's going to have a great career. Nick Shook joining us here on the Wester Hotline on WGR. You can follow him on Twitter at the Nick Shook. He is around the NFL, does a lot of next-gen stats work. I, I want to go back to Allen for a second because so we, we have this thing here in Buffalo where lots of people tell us how bad Josh Allen is, how inaccurate Josh Allen is, and then people say, yeah, but you know you don't understand that he can do this well and he can do that well. And the way I've tried to explain it is he'll never be a – analytics darling, if you will, right? He's never going to be the guy that necessarily shows up on the the charts with the analytics as far as passing and accuracy and things like that. But the Bills are also fully aware of Josh Allen and what he can do and what he can't do. And they've really done a nice job, to me, of playing to his strengths. How do you, when you go in, how do you correlate that just as a football fan and doing the work that you do, your eyeball test versus your next-gen stats test and, you know, taking everything into account when you come up with your analysis? I think that that depends on um, what space we're in, because if I'm asked to come in and and offer something that's next-gen stats reliant, I know Josh Allen's not going to be a stud in that group. And that's okay, because he still finds ways to make plays. And sometimes that's with his feet, which I think he does a little bit too often to have a a lengthy career, but, you know, it's still early. Maybe he can adjust that accordingly. But that's also part of what makes him effective is, you know, he is a playmaker. Um, I, I think that, you know, one of his strengths coming out of college is that big arm. Uh, was maybe a little, not overblown, but overvalued a little bit because he's not 
quite as accurate at getting it down there. But every once in a while, you know, he'll throw one up there, and it'll be, you know, I think about two seasons ago when he would, you know, air it out to Robert Foster for example, mm-hmm. for a long touchdown. I mean, it'd be something where you'd, you'd be like, man, there's that arm. Wow, that was a really pretty pass. Um, it's, but you don't draft quarterbacks to throw 75-yard touchdown passes every play. You draft them to be effective on a per-down basis, and I think that's something that he's continually – learned how to do from year to year. You saw it much more this past season um, as it progressed. And even though they lost that playoff game, I thought he played really well for the majority of that game uh, you know, in Houston. So I think it's, he's a guy that you should be excited about. I wasn't a big fan of him coming out of Wyoming because I just thought his accuracy issues were, were very worrisome, but mm-hmm. I think the Bills have done a good job of managing that. And I think that uh, surrounding him with talent is also going to help, and I think they've done that so far. So I mean, you can't argue with where they got last year and with the, uh, the kind of culture and the mindset that Sean McDermott has, uh, has put into place here in Buffalo and uh, how that's winning them games. And I think he fits that well. I think he fits Buffalo well. And as long as he can stay healthy and avoid the uh, back-breaking mistakes, I think he's going to be the quarterback there for quite a few years to come. I'm looking at your deep passers and the work that you did on them. And a couple of things stand out to me. Uh, Tom Brady, number four on the list. I, you know, as a guy, I, I work on the broadcast. I'm on the sidelines. It was noticeable the difference last year in Tom Brady to me, his physical play, um, and it seemed like he missed more routine throws, if you will, than normal. But you have him still pretty highly ranked. And Dak Prescott comes in at number one overall. Wild, right? Sometimes the numbers are just kind of crazy, uh, and when you compare them with the eye test, because. I was at the Browns for the first half of the season last year, and I remember seeing him in New England, uh, you know, toward the middle of the season and thinking the same thing. There were times where he'd just throw to guys and, and just flat out miss, or he, the guy just wouldn't be there. And sometimes you had to wonder, well, is that him getting old? Because he's never looked like this super athlete in the pocket, but he's completed the pass and mm-hmm. he's put it on the money when he's had that time. But he's had a lot of receivers that he just didn't have much familiarity with. I mean, they had to go get Muhammad Sanu in the middle of the season. Uh, he, it was his first season without Gronk. His best and most familiar receiver was Julian Edelman, which you can only throw the ball to him so many times. I thought it was really interesting that a lot of these numbers were kind of propped up on early season deep ball completions to guys like Philip Dorsett. Uh, I think three of his top four deep passes in the first couple weeks of the season, because I, I dug into his, t- uh, his touchdowns on uh, air yards of 20 or more. He's got seven touchdowns. Um, I think two of them were to Philip Dorsett in week one. And then another one that wasn't a touchdown but was a very long completion was the Josh Gordon, who was not with the team by the time we got to the middle of the season. So I think he dealt with a lack of familiarity in his receiving court very often. You're also dealing with a little bit of age, and I think it was a combination of the two where this is a guy who's going to have to have receivers he can rely on, which is why it's going to be really interesting to see how he adjusts to Tampa Bay because he doesn't have that offseason to work with those guys. So. Um, but it does kind of prove that he can still push the ball down the field when he's got a receiver that he's comfortable with and can, and can you know, has the experience with and the practice time with and knows where he's going to be on the field and everything accordingly. And it also was kind of an illustration of how their running game fell off a cliff in the second half of last season because it was effective enough to give him time to throw and, mm-hmm. and be able to complete the passes downfield early in the season. And by the time he got to the second half of the season, it was very much their offense had very much ground to a halt and it affected all parts of it. Yeah, I'm fascinated uh, what's going to happen down in Tampa with Tom Brady. We're just glad that it, the Bills don't have to face him twice a year anymore. That's had been enough of him for 20 years in the division, which is incredible, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how that works. I, you worked with in, at the Cleveland Browns, as you said, and I noticed Baker Mayfield did show up uh, as number 10 on your on your deep ball uh, next-gen stats. What, what should we expect from Baker and the Browns this year, given what you know about them, new uh, head coach Kevin Stefanski and what he's going to try and do. So 
I was surprised to see Baker show up on the list. This is another player when you ask that question about who you're surprised yep. to see show up on the list. I thought it was Baker because they did try to air it out at times, but it felt forced for a majority of the season. Um, I was interested to see that he you know, still had a positive difference between completion percentage and, and expected completion percentage, which I think was an indication of the fact that his top two receivers were playing hurt the entire year and that he didn't have the best offensive line uh, in the history of football protecting him. Uh, his six touchdowns and six interceptions, I think, indicated a guy who was very willing to a fault to take the risk on the deep shot. But it did, you know, it did surprise me somewhat that his you know, difference was still positive. I think it just showed that he was working with some factors that uh, were working against him. Uh, and I think Odell being, you know, dealing with the multiple injuries he had and Jarvis Landry dealing with the hip injury that he had, hidden successfully from the public for the entire season. Uh, you know, I talked to Jarvis in, in Orlando during the Pro Bowl, and he said, you know, I got 1,100 yards and I was hurt the whole year. I moved my legs. He, he stood there and showed me. If I moved it forward, it hurt. If I moved it sideways, it hurt. If I moved it back, it hurt. He said, I would have had 1,500 if I was healthy. And I said, well, what makes you think that? And he goes, I was getting tackled by guys who wouldn't tackle me if I was fully healthy, the first hmm. tackle. Those guys are taking me down that typically wouldn't take me down. So you give them an entire off season to um, kind of get healthy, um, they don't have the on-field reps, which is still going to hurt them. But you've also got a coach who I think has a much better understanding and control of the team than, unfortunately, Freddie Kitchens did last year. So I think Kevin Stefanski coming in there with that, uh, with those young playmakers who are going to come in uh, healthy for the first time as Browns, they're going to have to learn the playbook remotely and kind of you know get up to speed on that. But I do expect them to be better offensively this year. I don't know if it's going to translate into you know a ton of wins, but I do think they'll be better than they were last year just because it'll be more stable and the environment will be more conducive for success than it was uh, last year, which things got kind of a little bit out of hand sometimes in Cleveland, I think, uh, with those who were in charge at the time. And before I let you go, Nick, um, Nick Shook, by the way, joining us here on the Western Hotline and WGR, the move towards so much more information, analytics, next-gen stats, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's all just as much information as you, as you can gather. It seems like there's become a bit of a change in football itself amongst people. I mean, we've seen the Browns with an analytically analytics-driven front office for a couple of years there. We've seen other teams kind of incorporate them. I know the Bills like to use them. I know that the Philadelphia Eagles are very big into them. How much have you seen of that as a guy who does this, where teams themselves have literally you know, changed their philosophy on how they evaluate players and using these types of things instead of just, you know, the eyeball test as a football player? Well, I think this is kind of interesting for a few reasons. Um, you know, these numbers can kind of reveal strengths of players that you might not see on a per-down basis over the course of a season because this player or that play might not jump out to you. Dak Prescott landing number one on this list was very surprising to me just because when I think of deep ball throwers and guys who complete the deep ball, I don't think of Dak Prescott immediately. I do think of Russell Wilson and Patrick Mahomes who were mm-hmm. second and third on this list. But it did reveal to me that, hey, maybe he's better at this than we realized. Maybe he is worth more, more money than some people might think. But also, it's, it's kind of a strange crossroads for me because, first off, the, the use of the term analytics, I think, is too broadly used and somewhat negatively mm-hmm. um, in the NFL because it's the last sport to really embrace advanced metrics in any form. Uh, you know, you got the football guys versus the nerds, as they say, right? And Cleveland has been at the center of that battle in the last few years. Yep. Um, and as a guy who got into journalism because I was bad at math, um, it's kind of been an interesting exercise for me as well. Because, I mean, when I first dug into these, we have a back-end console at the NFL. When I first dug into these probably four and a half years or so ago when it first became available, I just saw a spreadsheet with a bunch of numbers and a bunch of different categories. I didn't really understand it. But once you kind of understand it and understand how it 
illustrates strengths and weaknesses and how different factors play into games. And as our next-gen stats, people continue to work on creating new models for different types of the game to help judge that. I think it helps us better understand effectiveness versus not because a lot of stats that we use are they're outdated or they're, they're too important. Sacks, for example, are an incomplete stat. Uh, how often does a guy get that close to a quarterback and he gets the ball off? You're going to tell me that just because he didn't sack him, he's not effective? No, he's still effective. He's just not quite finishing as well as you want him to, which a lot of factors go into that as well. So I think it helps us better understand each player's effectiveness and their value over the course of a season or multiple seasons. Um, I think the, the biggest challenge now is explaining that and getting people to understand that, which I think I've been tasked with and I try to do a good job with, but it's still a learning experience for me as well. I do know that our next-gen stats people are continuing to uh, come up with more indicators of, of effectiveness in different areas. I think they've got a good uh, running back stat that we should expect to see soon um, for projected rushing yards per play, that kind of thing, and how effective running backs are. So I'm excited to see how that's implemented and how accurate that is as well. But it's the future, and I think we have to embrace it because uh, information is power, and the more information available can't hurt anybody. No doubt about it. Really good stuff, man. I really appreciated you doing this today. I hope you have a uh, healthy, safe, and uh, good Memorial Day weekend, and I uh, hope to talk to you again down the road. I, I enjoyed this. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. That is Nick Shook of Next Gen Stats, part of NFL.com's uh, Next Gen Stats. And, you know, he's got some really nice stuff out there today and this week that you can read. And he's got pass catchers. Stefan Diggs ranked third in top pass catchers of 2019 based on the analytics and metrics, advanced metrics, if you will, of expected catch rate versus catch rate. Deep passers, he's got that. Disruptors going on the defensive side of the ball. Haven't seen anything on DBs yet. I'm sure we're going to have something on that. Running backs, he said, they're going to have something on that. That was really good. I enjoyed that conversation. And you can check it out, again, not only on demand at WGR550.com, but now Joe DiBiase is going to have to do this. Brayton's been uploading everything to the Sal Sports and Stuff podcast today, just so you know. So we're going to have that on there as well. You can always find Sal Sports and Stuff wherever you pod. All right. Uh, when we come back, what are we going to talk about? i got a few things I can get to I, that I have not gotten to today. See, I always kind of write notes down about, oh, got to get to that, got to get to that, got to get to that. One thing I've been thinking about a little bit, and this is not an original thought by me, by the way, because I've seen it bumped around a little bit on the Internet. I'd like to get your thoughts. Maybe you can tweet me on this or give a call. I've taken no calls today through three and a half hours. That's not because I don't want to. You just haven't called. You can. I've been having guests. That's fine. Got another one coming up at 2 o'clock. But if you want to, if you want to call in, maybe you can give a suggestion or tweet me if we did just a Buffalo-themed documentary like The Last Dance, right? It's not going to be 10 parts. I don't think we could have anything that could go 10 parts. But something you'd really like to dive into and say, I'd like to know the backstory, learn about something. It could be like a two-part documentary or something, just a one long one. Buffalo, something Buffalo sports-related. What? It's got to have certain qualities, right? So Joe and I will kick it around. Like, What kind of qualities you need to have? But maybe you have an idea of what would satisfy those qualities to do something like that for a Buffalo audience. And you never know. Maybe it could get done someday. Maybe it's already been done in some fashion. We'll talk about that when we come back on WGR as well as have Arthur Motes, former Buffalo Bills linebacker, at 2 o'clock. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Our team was so good, and, and it wasn't you know just a connection. It wasn't our line. We had Freddie Stanfield. We had Jimmy Lawrence. I mean, Brian Spencer, Sean Phil Korab. I can go on and on. And, and it was just a good team of, of guys, you know, great bonding. We, we worked well together. We got along well together. And it says so much about, I, you know, my early years is how I saw and I really enjoyed being around that group. And who did we just hear from there in that soundbite? Danny Gare. Danny. We had a great time roasting Danny Gare a couple of weeks ago. A couple of years ago, excuse me. Was it last year, I think it was? That was last year, yeah, right? Yeah, last year, right? We had a great time doing that. I told a joke. I can tell it now because it's been over time, right? Enough time. Because this year we had Eric at the roast. Last year was Danny Gare. No, Danny's not the biggest dude in the world, right? Were you there at the Danny Gare roast? No, this past one for Eric Wood was my first. Okay. Well, so there were a couple things I said about Danny Gare, which I, I'll tell you now because the roast is over and what happens at the roast stays at the roast. No, no, no. I'm going to do that because I'm proud of my jokes and I made up made them up myself. Uh, number one, because Danny's not the biggest dude. I said, hey, you know, Danny, I have a six-year-old son and he's always wanted this jersey, a uh, Sabres jersey. And he's like, ah, should I get like a Jack Eichel? Should I get... And I'm like, you know... Get a guy who used to play like a long time ago because you'll never he'll never be gone, right? He's always so I settled on you, Danny, because you know you played, you were a really good player, and you know so we. I said it's pretty crazy. I said so. What's cr- the most incredible part is I found a literally a game worn Danny Gare jersey, and it fits my five year old perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said. That was you know the joke. Uh, and then um, I also said, and this is true. I did some research beforehand, and I'm like, you know. You have all these numbers that are retired in the rafters, right? You have Danny Gares, you have Pat LaFontaine and Alexander McGillney and you know the French Connection, all these numbers that are hanging up, Dominic Hasek. Now, but you go through them like nobody wore 16 after LaFontaine. Nobody wore, you know, 39 after Dominic Hasek. Mm-hmm. Danny leaves town wearing number 18. Literally the next night, Gilles Hamel is wearing 18. Like that's... Yeah, that's why they didn't even care that Danny Gare was gone out of town at that point, right? But then later on, they they actually did because uh, they, they couldn't give they couldn't give away his jersey fast enough. That he's he's always been a great sport. He is a very good underrated player, I think, from Sabers past that people don't really give enough credit to when they talk about some of the all time greats. Yeah, you look at some of his numbers. Danny Gare's numbers were awesome and for I, a few years there. I've always wondered, amazing, if he wasn't as much a part of the community still that he is. Like if he, right, like he'd he, be he more forgotten. Detroit, right, if maybe he stays in Detroit after his playing career. Right, he would be way. I don't think he would be appreciated nearly enough if that had been the case. And I think the fact that he is around it now and again is uh, has helped his legacy. No it doubt, is, it, fifty goals led the yes, league one year. Like, he was, yeah, he was a fantastic player, and he does now. He does the. Uh, it's called can ice. He has this surface he's involved with that people that have the synthetic ice surface. It's pretty cool. Some of the stuff he's doing. You know, it. I I, I partly bring it up because when I think about what I just teased the segment with, which is if we could have like a Buffalo. 
documentary. I mean, one thing I don't really see a lot of for an answer to this, and the question is, let's say we said, all right, we could have a Buffalo-themed Last Dance type of documentary. It's not going to be 10 parts. We're not going to have enough material for that. But what would you like to learn more about, see more about, hear the backstories about? Now, I don't know if there's enough. There probably wouldn't be enough like strife in here because you think you've got to have strife to be part of it. But I think the French connection would be a good one. Like how they came together, how good they were, how they broke up, how they were, you know, this those guys and what they meant to the league at the time. Because... Joe, you weren't born, but even I was a little kid. I don't remember the French Connection playing together. I watched Joe Bear Perot growing up. Like he was, when I played and I was up to about 14, 15 years old, he played. So in those years, I remember, maybe even earlier than that when he retired, it was late 80s when he retired. Mm -hmm. So like my youth, Gilbert Perot was a big part of, but I do not know and remember him playing Rick Martin or playing with Rennie Robert or Rick Martin. I just don't. So... I think the French connection would be actually be a really good one to have. The problem is, I think if you do a documentary like this, there's a few things you got to have. And I don't know if this would have it if you did a French connection one, which is you I think you have to have like you have to have some sort of bad guy, some sort of strife, some sort of behind the scenes juicy controversy. There was nothing like that with the French connection that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Maybe though we could get into it. I also think Scotty Bowman, I'll tell you, I've talked to enough people, and we had Scotty on a couple weeks ago when I filled in for Howard as the mystery guest. He's amazing. When Scotty was here, there was some of that because Scotty was the kind of guy that if you had a bad game, he wanted you traded the next day. And he was the GM. So there was enough of that. I think there's there's stuff back then that I would like to learn about. What about you? What would you... The, you t- you tweeted out a list, and I saw people yep. tweeting lists, and I did not see yet the one that would be number one on my list. And oh. it, in part, maybe because there is a documentary about it, but it's it's like it's an NHL Network documentary, and no, no offense to the NHL Network, right. but like like a thirty for thirty for ESPN, the budget and like the production value and all of that, the film aspects of it would just be totally different. I, I want to see one on Alexander McGillney's defection to to North America, like him. Yep. Basically, That's a great sneaking one. off his team when he's in Sweden at the World Championships and watching that NHL Network one, like it left me wanting more. Like Jerry Meehan, the GM for the Sabres at the time, talking about how he's driving around in the back of a car with McGillney and they're continuing to move around because their flight's not for a few hours back to Buffalo or back to North America and they think they're being followed by the KGB. That's amazing. And like they move off that pretty quickly. I'm like, wait, I want to hear more about they thought they were being followed by the KGB. So to me, that's a story that I would like to see much more done than just a 30-minute uh, or 45-minute or NHL Network documentary. So I love it. One. I love it. I think uh, Bill tweeted in. He agrees with you. Uh, he said Alexander McGillney. Um, Mike says McGillney 76 goals, which is part of that, right? you gotta, you got to have— You could just do one on McGillney. Yeah, general, right, just yeah. him. Um, Mike also says maybe getting a Major League Baseball expansion team. Do you—that's way before you, right? It's a little before. So, early 90s? Yeah, it's before. Yeah, it was really, it was, yeah, late 80s, early 90s when it was, like, happening late 80s and then early 90s when it really came to the forefront. And that was, if I believe, I think that was the Rockies-Marlins expansion. Like, they gave the team to Colorado and they gave the team to to mm-hmm. Florida. So, um, I, I think that was a good one. Or that would be a good one. I agree. Mike also says, Niagara Falls High School, Harrison Flynn. You know, I think you could do a good documentary on... Like Western New York, like athletes who came through here and some of them. I just don't know 
to me, that would be more of just kind of a fluff, though, because there were just right. great players. Where's the controversy? Where's the controversy? Super interesting. I mean, there was one with Leitner, of course. He'd had his own, which was I hate Christian Leitner, yes. and they did go through him playing in Buffalo and growing up, and there was some stuff that went on back then, but there really wasn't uh, anything I think that would qualify to the level of this. Uh, let's go out to Jerry and Kenmore. Jerry's on WGR. Hi, Jerry. You know, if you ask me who my favorite Sabres of all time were, I'll tell you Chris Drury and Richard Martin. And the reason I loved Richard Martin was after the knee injury and the way it was handled and everything and the early ending of his career, he had every reason to leave Buffalo, but he didn't. And there's a lot of those guys, whether it's Larry Playfair or Thurman Thomas or Fred Jackson or Scotty Bowman. I'd love to see something done on the guys that stayed and were a huge part of the community. You know, Rick had every reason to leave. They they did him wrong in the organization. And he stayed. He was, you'd go into some of the local restaurants or golf courses. Rick was always around. You know, I did not see him play. I, I was too young to remember him playing. But when you say he could have left, refresh my memory, Jerry. Like, what was NHL free agency at the time? They really didn't have free agency then. Well, he ended up playing for, I want to say the Leafs, for a couple years at the end of his career. But we mismanaged his knee injury, and, he, and his career was cut short. The, you know, I think he ended up winning a lawsuit with the Sabres because of the knee injury. And, and I think that would make you bitter towards an organization and want to leave, but he hung around. He was in clearance all the time at... You know, you always saw him smoking a cigar. I played golf with him when I was 17 years old, and it was him and Fred Stanfield. It was right when, when, uh, you know, like the metal drivers and stuff came out. Right, right, right. He had one. And I'm a 17-year-old, and he let me hit it all the way around on the backside. And it was just a – it was a riot. You know, there's a lot of those guys – like I remember I officiate a little bit of Little League football, and Fred Jackson's kids played for Hamburg, and he was there all the time. Mm -hmm. It's just – you know, there's a lot of people that really come here and love it and stay. Thurman's a perfect example. You know, it's it's not only those guys. Here's what's always struck me, Jerry. Aurora. There's a lot of guys who, what's always struck me is not just those guys. It's guys like Marcel Dion lived in Western New York, and I don't know, he might still. Scotty Bowman, right? I mean, guys who, you know, they, they, they may have been here for a cup of coffee or never even played here. Or coached here, and they, because of the proximity to Canada, especially with the hockey players and people like that as well. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and you know, Steve Tasker, he's like the mayor of Florida. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right about that, no doubt. Thanks, Jerry. I appreciate it. Have a good uh, holiday weekend. Yeah. Um, by the way, I have to correct myself. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize. Thank you very much for um, to Sean for tweeting me and letting me know this. And that is right, and I forgot. Chris Taylor wore 16 after Pat LaFontaine. Okay. For four years in Buffalo. Chris Taylor. And I looked it up. It's right. That's right. Darren Shannon wore it 90-92. LaFontaine wears it 92 to 97. Chris Taylor from 2000 to 2004. So they did reissue it then. So my bad on saying that. The joke still worked on Danny Gear though. I was making a point <laughs> that like the minute he left town they gave him his number uh, 18, right? If you look up 18, Connolly wore it. Grow- I remember growing up Tim Connolly wearing 18 and having to switch well, because they never retired. What's funny about that is, so when I was a kid and, and I'm it's it's funny to say now, I'm kind of embarrassed, but it's true. My favorite player when I was a a kid was Paul Sear, and he wore 18. Paul okay. Sear had this, like, monster slap shot, but he couldn't hit the broad side of a barn, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was my guy, and I remember that. So I remember, you know, talking with Danny one time and joking with him and going, hey, Danny said 18 up there, that's for Paul Sear, right? You know, I said, not, not really. But the joke was, at the time, and I had said that at the roast, it's true, 
like Danny leaves town and Jill Hamel's wearing it like the next night or within a few weeks or something like that in the same season, which is kind of funny. But thinking about this um this Buffalo um subject, I agree with John who just called in. I'm sorry, who just tweeted in. John writes, and I agree with you, John. It's it would be really high on my list to learn about the Buffalo Braves. I, I think we're to a point now, Joe, where we should know more about the Braves. There was a great article in the Buffalo News a couple of years ago that Bucky Gleason wrote. And he interviewed Paul Snyder, who owned the Braves, and went through the all the reasons why they left. And I came away understanding a lot more about that situation than I had originally ever known. And I think a lot of the anger was directed at the time from when I grew up, people telling me who to blame here, and like Paul Snyder was one of them. Through this article, I realized that is not really who to blame for this. And maybe you can in some respect, but really the people to blame were the people that did not allow for Memorial Auditorium to be used for Friday night basketball, which is what the NBA said you had to have because we couldn't sell tickets at the time, I believe. Get this. Canisius basketball was so big, they were using the odd a lot during those times. And basically, they kind of ruled the roost here as far as basketball. And one of the reasons this this article went into was contractually, the Braves weren't going to be able to use the, the, the arena on those nights. And the NBA said, well, we can't have a team if you can't do that. That's amazing. That's crazy. I, w- I would be into hearing more about that, too. Just right. In that part of it, and also, like, those teams, some of those teams were, they were like, good. Really good. They were so, they had such right. talent, right? Adrian Dantley, Moses Malone, Dr. Jack Ramsey was a coach mm-hmm. for the teams, you know, and we hear, see him on broadcast now. I, I, I agree with you. Um, Johnson Flutie would be an amazing one with all the stuff that went that, back. That is one I would personally, because I don't remember that really that much at all. And watching, uh, uh, Doug Flutie, a football life on NFL Network. Like they mm-hmm. get into that a little bit, but I would kind of want one just based solely on that and learning some of the details uh, on like what was happening there. Like that's what what I, what I want in a documentary. A lot of times too is like a uniqueness because yes. a lot of these sports stories, like you could do it on a million different guys. Like you could do a documentary on almost any athlete, and it could be. Kind of interesting, but where's the uniqueness coming from? And I think that that Rob Johnson, Doug Flutie era of Bills football, like that's unique not only to the Bills but even to the league to have a situation where a player is playing in a meaningless game towards the end of the season and <laughs> right. he basically gets put in in a playoff game because of that. Like when has that ever happened other than that? You know one I would really like to see too? So there's been documentaries and movies or whatever on the four Super Bowl. There's been that. We know that. We, we, we've seen it. Um, you know, Four Falls of Buffalo was awesome. You could watch that. And you, but, but what I think was really maybe even more fascinating, and of course, going to four Super Bowls, fascinating enough, was how those teams were built and how they got there. I, I would be totally down for a documentary covering the Bills from 85 through their first Super Bowl. Joe, those years, I mean, you t- they had, you talk about strife and turnover. Ask Bruce Smith and Daryl Talley how much they hated Hank Bulla as their coach in 85. Okay. Getting Bruce, it would, to me, you'd start with getting Bruce as the number one pick in 85. That draft, think about that draft. Bruce, Andre, Frank Reich come in 85. You get Kelly in 86 from the USFL. Okay, there's a strike in 87 when the team is starting to rise. They miss the playoffs going seven and eight. They get Thurman in 88. 
They win the division in November by so many games, go to the playoffs, lose in the championship game. Derek Burroughs gets tossed out of the game on a big third down, which costs them, basically. They go to 89 when they have the playoff game in Cleveland, the Ronnie Harmon drop, and that's when the no huddle was born at the end of the game, basically, when they said, oh my God, we got something here. To me, 85 through 89 Bills, I think is a better documentary than four Super Bowl Bills. I think you get everything in that. Everything. The four Super Bowl Bills are about how talented they are and how they just kept bouncing back. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're down on the mat, they keep coming back. They're down on the mat, they keep coming back. There was the same team for four years. It was the same coach for four years. They, 85, Hank Bulla, 86, Marv Levy comes in. Bill Polian comes in. They get Jim Kelly. They get Bruce Smith. They get Andre Reid. They get Thurman Thomas. Like, all these people coming in, they go to the playoffs. They lose. A heartbreaker. Another one. A heartbreaker. That's it for me. I think that would be a great documentary. Somebody needs to get on that. Where's Michelle? I got to get in touch with her. She's got to get on it. I'll do a I'll do a part for you. I'll I'll do uh, interview me. I was a teenager then. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. We'll talk real quick. And at the top of the hour, Arthur Motes is going to join us here on WGR. It trickled down to the rest of the team. Max Finneganoff scoring in overtime. Tim Conley scoring in overtime. JP Dumont scoring in overtime. You know, we had so many guys that followed that mindset as well. And for such a young team to be able to not be flustered when you get in those big moments and to find ways to make big plays at the right time was pretty amazing to be a part of. Danny Briere. Yeah, he's right about those teams, and I, I've heard from a lot of you said that would be a good documentary, those teams, the 06-07 Sabres, and I think we are far enough away from them now, right? I mean, that we are 13 years yeah. away from that team being broken up. A, a reason I played that is not even necessarily a documentary on the seasons, but I would want a documentary on them being broken up. Like, just one on July yep. 1st, 2007 alone. I feel it could be docu- like a whole episode. I agree with you. That would be a really, really tough watch, though. That's you, a tough would, watch for for Bills for be a tough uh, Buffalo watch. fans. And you would need to get people to talk that yes. might not want to talk. That's like, right. You know, the guys that were in the Sabres front office at that point: Derek Darcy, Regeer, assistant GMs, Lindy, even Galasano. Like, there's a big chunk of people with information there that might never yep. be willing for it to do it. I can't imagine Chris Drury would ever talk about that. Right. Right. No. I, no, yeah, probably not. Not, not, probably not, not only in general terms. He would never. I don't think he'd ever get specific. Sure. When I interviewed Pekka for his um, for my podcast, I asked him like about the contract situation. Mike Pekka sat out a whole year, and people believe a lot of people believe, maybe rightfully so, that if he plays that year, they you know get past Pittsburgh, they get maybe farther, go to a cup. Who knows? But either way, I asked him about it, and he, I didn't tell him I was going to. I think he knew, but he said I don't want to talk about the specifics, but I can talk about basically generally what happened. And the feelings. And I think that's what it would be, but yeah, that'd be a tough one. All right. Arthur Motes, our friend from, well, now in the media, media friend, used to be with the Bills, then the Steelers, and linebacker. He uh, is going to join us coming up. We're going to talk a lot about the NFL. Interested in his take on some of the uh, the new rules to help promote uh, diversity, minority hirings, and promotions, as well as the game itself. Some of the rules are going to be voted on. And his thoughts on the Bills and the Steelers. We'll do that when we come back in WGR. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. 
It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.